Coming to you from the studios at the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C., I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time, we have microphones in our faces, and you are listening in. And this month, we are so, so excited because we have two incredible guests with us. On the phone, we have Reverend Dr. William Barber II. Uh, he's the president and senior lecturer of Repairs of the Breach, an author, preacher, and professor. He's the chief architect of the Forward Together Moral Movement and the co-chair of the New Poor People's Campaign. Dr. Barber, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Lisa, and glad to be with you on Freedom Road. Absolutely, absolutely. And then we also have Anisha Singh. She is this incredible um, organizer. She's a senior organizing director for Generation Progress, the youth engagement arm of American Progress. Anisha's expertise is in race, ethnicity, religion, and the federal courts, y'all. So I've asked, oh, Anisha, hello. <laughs> hello. Thank you for having me on the show. Really, really glad to have you. Really got to meet you, actually. Yeah, Very good. absolutely. So I've asked both of these incredible people here to join us on Freedom Road to help us to understand the significance of the process our nation is entering into, hello, as the Senate decides whether it will confirm Brett Kavanaugh as the next justice of the Supreme Court or not, Mm -hmm. right? So that is really literally where we are. We'd love to hear what you think of this topic as well. Tweet to me at Lisa S. Harper or to Freedom Road at Freedom Road us. Also, we see you sharing the podcast with your friends and networks and commenting on Facebook and Instagram. Woo-woo! We love that. Keep it coming. Our listening community is growing every single month. We really appreciate you and love that you are not just content listening in. You are engaging and inviting your friends to join you on Freedom Road. So back in June, Justice Anthony Kennedy announced that he would retire at the end of the term. And, you know, that end of the term was in July, basically. So that gave us a month to freak out and to wail and gnash our teeth and also for the country to begin to come to terms with the fact that we are really at a precipice moment. We're literally at what I've been calling a make it or break it moment where we will decide as a nation through this choice, what kind of a nation we want to be. Because you see, this opened up a seat on a nine-person Supreme Court. And this is the highest court in the United States, one of three co-equal branches of government. And I want to give us just a quick civics lesson uh, before we jump in, just so that we're all on the same page about what we're talking about here. So the government has these three branches. One branch is the executive branch. That's the president. She or he sets the vision, defines the mission, leads the military, keeps everybody safe and sound. And then the legislative branch, that's Congress, they make laws and they are the ones who kind of set the national budget and create the structures that guide our daily lives. And then you have the judicial branch, which is the Supreme Court and all those federal courts that Anisha is an expert on, right? So... The judicial branch interprets and maintains the integrity of our Constitution. 
and makes judgments about whether or not folks have actually like transgressed, you know, gone over the line. Now, the thing about the Supreme Court is unlike both the president and the Congress, they are not elected and they have no term limits, y'all. Like they literally, once they get appointed, they're appointed for life. You can't get them out. You can't fire them. You can't lobby them even. Like it's literally like a, that's part of the reason why this is kind of a make it or break it moment. They are appointed by the president after vetting and confirmation by the Senate. House has nothing to do with this. At which point they enter service for the rest of their lives or until they decide to retire like Justice Kennedy. Okay, so enough with the civics lesson. Before we jump into all the technical stuff, I want to hear from Anisha and Reverend Dr. Barber about how your lives have intersected with the Supreme Court. First, can I just tell you my very first memory of the Supreme Court? It was the confirmation hearings for Justice Clarence Thomas, and it was 1991, and I was just out of college, and I remember watching an OMG, y'all. I mean, no joke, right? Like, the whole country was riveted to the television screen forever for the whole time that that thing was going on. I had very little understanding of all the racial dynamics that were going on there, all the political politicizing that was going on there. We will post the links to the articles in the show notes so that you can partake yourselves if you're younger and don't really have this in your collective memory. But I remember how riveted I was and how confused I was when Anita Hill accused Thomas of sexual harassment, actually one of the first Me Too moments. And and he then turned it around and called the whole thing a, quote, high-tech lynching. Well, that was incredibly, well, lightning just struck at that moment. And it was, it was one of those moments that you'll never forget. So I want to know, how about you, Reverend Barber? How about you, Anisha? What was your first moment, first memory that involves the Supreme Court? So I don't know about first memory, but I can definitely say the one that was so impactful was actually when I first started here at Center for American Progress three years ago in 2015. It happened to be the same Supreme Court term where we were, we had a couple of things on the line, health yes. and love. I mean, two things that are just so essential to human life, mm-hmm. right? To, to our happiness, to mm-hmm. our well-being, health and, and love. And so whether or not we, we wanted to allow for marriage equality and whether or not we wanted to protect the Affordable Care Act um, and the millions and millions of people who would be impacted Mm -hmm. if they lost their health care. And both decisions were coming out within the same week. And I remember we went to the Supreme Court, we rallied outside, and and it was the first time I really was rallying outside the Supreme Court, you know, for a case. And and now I can say I've done it maybe, you know, dozens of times. But that was really it. And the power, you know, of that, the energy there, how much was at stake? You know, you had LGBT groups out there. This was this was about their lives and the livelihood. But it also was going to speak to, you know, precedent, how powerful was the the loving case um, that allowed, yes. um, you know, interracial marriage, mm-hmm. right? How powerful are precedent cases and how is that going to be impacted by this and, and all of that? So I think that was a huge moment. And we and we won on both, right? Love and health both prevailed. People's health care was protected. Love was protected. Individuals didn't have to be fearful and were able to embrace that love. And it really went to show how powerful the courts are. That could have gone a completely different direction Mm -hmm. if we had different justices on the court. You know what's really interesting about that loving case? I've been doing, well, anybody who knows me knows I love my genealogy and DNA and all that stuff. 
for my next book, I've actually been writing all the family history, and I've been going to, going deep and looking at family records. And I found that my ancestors, my family back in the 1800s and 1700s, lived like next door to the Lovings. Oh my goodness! I kid you not. It I was like that. what? And but then I also was studying Maryland and Virginia history of the laws, the um, slave codes, and then also the the sexual politics laws that began to rise up in the 1600s, it was that loving case that actually broke the precedent that had been set since 1690. Yeah. So, like, yeah. the laws of the the lack, the not wanting to have misogynization of the races had been in set for hundreds of years, and it was the one case in the Supreme Court that turned that all around. That's how important that was. Thank you for yeah. raising that. That's really good. How about you, Dr. Barber? Well, I'm thinking, as you talk about the Supreme Court, you know, I was born August 30th, 1963, two days after the March on Washington. Mm. When I was born, even though it was about nine years post the Brown decision, uh, schools in the South had still not desegregated. Yes. In essence, the Southern states said, we're not going to comply with the law. So basically, you had a criminal a criminalized education system that refused to engage, you know, refused to honor the law. In fact, one of the lawyers that went back to for Brown too um, uh, was from my state who argued for, you know, deliberate speech, or in other words, we will slowly refuse to implement what the court has said is right. So my first encounter with the Supreme Court rulings was in 1968, 69, when I was finally able to go to a school that was formerly segregated, I went, I'm mm. only 55 years old, and mm. I went to segregated public schools. So when people want to talk about race, I say, you know, don't don't act as though it's some ancient history of the wow. 1800s or the early 1900s. My mother, who works today, and still works today at 86 years old, integrated the school she works in today. Oh I did not, was not able to go to integrated schools until the second grade in North Carolina. That was because of a massive, you know, ruling, uh, precedent-setting ruling of the Supreme Court. My second encounter that I think about the Supreme Court is the bad decision that the Supreme Court made June 25th, 2013, a day that I said, like, Roosevelt would go down in infamy. When the Supreme Court decided that racism was no longer real and we didn't need the full protections of the Voting Rights Act. Wow. And five members of the Supreme Court gutted the most important piece of legislation. In fact, President Johnson said it was more important than any of the battles we had fought. That was opening up the right to vote in a democracy. And on the day that that ruling came down, a legislator in North Carolina said, now that the headache has been removed, we can do what we want to do. And he, they proceeded to undo voting laws in North Carolina that had opened up the vote to all people that we had fought for for 25 years. Mm. And it began to happen all over the country, exactly what Ruth Bader Ginsburg said would happen. And we immediately had to go into fight mode. And then it took us four years for us to beat the regressive legislature in North Carolina. Mm. And the same Supreme Court... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> that had ruled, that, that had, had overturned um, uh, the Voting Rights Act, had to come back and agree 
that North Carolina had engaged in surgical racism. Mm -hmm. But the difference was North Carolina had put those laws in place for four years and it had two elections with laws that were racist because of the Supreme Court's undoing of Section 5, gutting of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. So isn't that an irony that the same court that said we no longer need Section 5 said that the Congress needed to redo the formula. The Congress has sat on it for now since since 2013. Mm. That same court has to then agree with us that the kind of racism they said was not happening. Happened. Right, right. And, and it's not like they can just go back and say, oops, sorry, let's go back and redo that. They actually have to now no. wait for another case to come that they would be able to rule in another direction on, right? That's they would have. Well, they- actually, we want, like I said, we want them, the, the, the legislature put these bad rules in place, you know, taking away same-day registration, early voting, and tried to put in the worst form of photo ID. We fought them. They spent $6 million of tax money. We had pro bono lawyers. We won, right? We right, won. Right. And the court said, but here's the problem. The legislature was elected through those bad laws, so we actually have an unconstitutionally constituted legislature that has blocked health care, gone against the Latino community, gone against women, attacked the poor, attacked unemployment, attack the gay community and we can't undo those laws that they put it that the things they did because they were in office but they got in office because of the ruling of the supreme court that did not allow pre-clearance to stop the regressive voting laws that they put in place if before 2013 they would have had to be pre-cleared right so, and so that's, everything they did pre-cleared yeah and that's what i'm actually saying is that they can't just go back and say oops sorry they, we do need pre-clearance okay sorry it's all good they can't do that they have to wait right the, the congress has to fix it now and the now problem, congress has to fix it as I, as I often say we said that strom Thurmond was a racist because he filibustered the civil rights act of 57 for one day Mm. We said he was a racist. Mm. Mm. Ryan McConnell and Boehner have filibustered fixing the Voting Rights Act for five years. Wow. Okay, so you can't see this, but my left <laughs> hand is raised as if I am in church right now. <laughs> this is for real, y'all. Yeah, this is years. for real. We have 23 states because of this. More than 23 states have engaged in massive voter suppression Mm -hmm. since 2013. And as I say, we do not know all that Russia did to hack our system. We do know that voter suppression hacked our system. And the sad thing is that that America is not talking about that. The reason we have Trump and a lot of the people in our Congress and state legislatures is not because so much what Russia did first. It's what massive voter suppression did. And that voter suppression was enabled by a ruling of the Supreme Court. And all of that is the Supreme Court. Yeah, and that has continued. This last term, we had a case coming out of Ohio, which basically said if you didn't vote in the last election, your vote, uh, you know, your voter registration goes out the window. So think about the communities that are being affected by that. It is people of color. It is low-income families. Maybe didn't get to vote the last time. Show up this next time thinking, I registered, you know, five, six years ago. Mm-hmm. Show up and they're told, no, you've been removed from the ro- voter polls. All because the Supreme Court just this last term decided. I mean, how important is the balance of the court? Because I know that that's actually for me as I've been thinking about this. That's That's kind of risen to the top of... This is the reason why this is such an important moment is because the balance of the court is about to be thrown off. 
How how important is that, Anisha? Well, I will say the balance was already thrown off a little bit when Gorsuch was confirmed. Um, okay. So Trump, yeah, so Trump already got, you know, one Supreme Court nominee, and we knew going into that nominee that he was going to be an extremist. On the campaign trail, Trump made clear whoever he was going to nominate was going to overturn Roe, mm. was going to be pro-corporation, was going to dismantle the ACA. We knew what that litmus test was, and so Gorsuch was confirmed. And so he was actually, this last term, the 5-4 deciding vote um, for things like the Muslim ban, which is now solidified, you know? We had the workers' rights case, which basically has weakened unions. I mean, we have unions. I have friends in unions who are now being laid off because it really hurts unions. Right. And then women's health care, right? They are, crisis centers are allowed to lie to patients and not give abortion as an option. And so these were three cases that, you know, uh, Gorsuch was that deciding vote. And so we've already seen that tip a little bit. Kennedy was, you know, what I would call a somewhat moderate conservative, mm-hmm. but a conservative, let's be real, Especially this past term, he has been voting in favor of, you know, the Republican agenda many, many times. However, he has been great. And, you know, we talked about marriage equality earlier. He did vote for that. You know, he did uh, make sure the ACA was protected. There have been good outcomes from him. Uh, Which is in some why cases. they call him an independent, even though like he's not in some ways a true independent. He is right. a conservative, but he wasn't he wouldn't always vote with the block in the same way right. that Clarence Thomas. You can right. always depend on Clarence Thomas to vote with the block. Right. Um, or Samuel Alito when he was there, right? So... Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so now to replace Kennedy with this other, uh, this new nominee, if it were to be Kavanaugh, would be, you know, would, yeah. would, would definitely sway it even more to the, yeah. to the right. Okay. I want to Lisa, even if these terms... See, I think we get locked into using terms that they set up which don't even describe the moment. In a, which mm. is, I mean, what is a conservative today? Right. <laughs> you know, what right. is an independent today? Oh, I mean, good. if you on the one hand vote to... to for marriage equality, but then on the other hand, you vote to make corporations like people and people like things, and on the other hand, you take away the right to vote, and on the other hand, you mm-hmm. undermine, I mean, so you get marriage equality, but then you can't eat because you can't get a job, you know, you can't get a living wage job, you can't Or you can't get a cake for your wedding. Or you can't get a cake for your wedding, right, or you get marriage <laughs> equality, but, but you, your, your right to vote is undermined. So then, you know, I mean, so yeah. the problem is we got to stop separating. Like, we got a win here, but we got a loss here. The reality is we are dealing with an extremism we haven't seen since the 1870s. Okay, so these are our stories. You are listening to Freedom Road Podcast, where we bring you candid conversations from the front lines of the struggle for justice. Okay, everybody, imagine this. Imagine one bus, 40 women, three days, multiple encounters with the diverse stories of our foremothers' struggles to attain, protect, and maintain the right to vote. We're going to travel from Seneca Falls to New York City to Atlantic City and then D.C. And then we're going to spend one full day on Capitol Hill talking to our legislators about the need to protect women's right to vote. The Ruby Boo Pilgrimage is happening again this year, November 4 through 8 on Freedom Road. Space is limited and registration is closing soon. So apply today at freedomroad.us.
we're back from the break. Dr. Barber, you were like mid-sentence when I cut you off, so forgive me for that. But you were about to go in on, on historical significance of this moment. So, so bring us up to speed. Well, well, let me just step into this way. I think this, again, I think we too much use the term of extremism that don't fit anymore this moment. You know, conservative versus liberal. I'm a conservative. I'll mm-hmm. say when it comes to hot sauce, I'm a conservative. When it comes to ketchup, I'm a liberal. <laughs> but, you know, and, you know, I want to conserve every scripture in the Bible about justice, and I want to liberally spread them to everybody. I want to mm-hmm. conserve the Constitution, equal protection under the law, the 15th Amendment, the right to vote, and I want to make sure it's liberally spread. These terms are so weak and anemic. Mm-hmm. The fact is, we're dealing with extremism, and one of the persons I would ask people to read is Nancy McLean's book on democracy and change. To really get an understanding of the connection between the economic theories of James Buchanan and the money of the Koch brothers and how that is built a movement that is intent on undermining our democracy in a way we haven't seen since 1877. In 1877, we had a selection of a president. We've only had three times in history when a president did not win the popular vote and the electoral college, and all three times were bad. Uh, Rufus B. Hayes in 1877, George Bush in 2000, and Trump in 2016. 1877, Rufus B. Hayes gets picked by one electoral vote, but he cuts a deal, a compromise. He says, you put me in office, I'll turn the South back over to the former slave owners, and I'll give you the Supreme Court. And he did. And by 1883, all of the civil rights laws that were passed between 1865 68 and 70 were overturned. Mm -hmm. And by 1896, you have Plessy versus Ferguson, separate but equal. Mm -hmm. And by the 1900s, basically, black voting has gone down to zero, particularly in the South, and white supremacy and white nationalism have overtaken our public policy, and President Roosevelt um, actually stops desegregation of the federal government. This is serious Mm -hmm. business, and there are people who, they don't want just five members, they want all the seats, or at least seven of the seats. And when we talk about, for instance, we talk about this past election, we keep saying Trump won, he did not win. Three million voters voted against him. He won by an electoral college that is racist, and he won because of voter suppression in the states. For instance, in Wisconsin, 250,000 people, votes were suppressed, he wins by less than 20,000 votes. I mean, right now, Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh is, if he gets in, that's a gangster appointment. And what I mean by that is, mm-hmm. blocking Obama's nominee hadn't been done that way for 150 years. To literally say, we're not even gonna let your nominee have a hearing. Mm-hmm. And now we have the Senate saying they're gonna vote on a Supreme Court justice and not use the 60% rule. They're gonna use the 50 plus one rule. Which is amazing. This, this is a kind of gangsterization of our politics. It is a taking over of the Supreme Court. We had a President Trump who, when he began running, people forget, he started out talking about changing the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment Equal Protection under the law, when it comes to gay people, black people, women, all of us, that is the salvation of our Constitution. It's right in the middle. There are 27 amendments. The 14th Amendment is right in the middle. Without the 14th Amendment and the First Amendment, the Constitution implodes. It literally implodes. So what I'm saying is we're in a reconstruction moment, and people need to, I think, read, as I said, Nancy McLean's Democracy and Change, about what's really going on 
and how racism and corporate money combining together to literally control not only the Congress, but the Supreme Court of these United States. And if Kavanaugh gets on, and all the secrecy around him are things we don't know, but the way he got is being positioned and put forward is dangerous to this democracy. And it hasn't been done like this in 150 years. And one of the things about the way that it was done that it shocked everybody when he was announced as the nomination in terms of the way he was vetted, right? Like he was vetted by two extremist organizations. And up to this point, only once before had that happened. I think before that, the the norm was was for the American Bar Association to be the vetting instrument, the vetting organization. But now it's the Heritage Foundation and the Federalist Society. Like this is unbelievable. So, okay, so Anisha, Anisha is jumping in too. Tell us about Brett Kavanaugh. What do we need to know about him? Well, I want to start by just, uh, I'm so grateful that we talked about the definition of conservative, right? Because that is what is so important right now. I think it does really normalize what is happening whenever we just say this is an extremist conservative nominee. No, that, you know, that's maybe what we were calling Alito, you know, but we are not there anymore. Mm -hmm. This is a nominee that has come out of Trump. And this is someone who has had to sit down with Trump. and, And for Trump to like you enough to put you on a lifetime appointment to represent him and his legacy for a lifetime to come what does that say about you and and wow. you know and and like the doctor was saying we are not in a place anymore where we can just call this conservatism you know this is racism this is this is a whole other ball game and so we all need to be activated i think people are thinking business as usual when it comes to the supreme court so but, true but here's what's at stake right just to boil it down it was mentioned we had a nominee that obama put forward for the last vacancy when scalia passed away this was a moderate what we called liberal again labels I mean, I'm, I'm putting up my quotations right here. Mm-hmm. You guys can't see me, but I'm doing it. <laughs> you know, but we had that. And, and this was someone who was approved by everyone. Even Republicans were saying, you know, if it yeah. wasn't for it being a election year, we would definitely put forward, you know, Merrick Garland because he's a great guy. So it was clear obstruction. It was clear partisanship. And they set that precedent and they have kind of created this culture. I mean, it wasn't just the Supreme Court. It was lower courts too, district courts, circuit courts. Everything was stopped. Hundreds of vacancies were just being left to, to to be vacant. And these, there are all these nominees that Obama was putting forward were not being confirmed. And then Trump wins. And then all of these nominations get expired. They put forward their own set of nominees. We have the fastest rate of confirmations on the lower courts since the Reagan administration. Twelve circuit court vacancies were filled in that first in, the, in 2017. Mm-hmm. And these are extremes. We can talk about that, too, who these people are, people who are, uh, you know, saying affirmative action is the same thing as slavery, that LGBTQ individuals individuals are degenerates. Yeah, my, 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 like my, literally my jaw just dropped. Yeah, what? These are bad, bad, yeah. bad yeah. nominees. And, and they're, they've been confirmed for lifetime appointments and seats in, in our lower courts. So that's, really? Wait, those are also lifetime appointments? Yes, lower so, courts. So I am learning right here. You're watching Lisa Sharon Harper yeah. learn something. Wow. Yes, these are, these are lifetime appointments and these are, hun- these are tens of thousands of cases that go through the lower courts. Let's remember the Muslim ban. It was blocked three times by lower courts, right? right? And those yeah. were lower courts 
court judges, lifetime appointments, and those judges luckily had that fair-mindedness that was needed to, to make those decisions. Right. But let's think about all of these seats that are being filled by Trump nominees who are so racist and extreme. Mm. What is that going to look like in the future, right? Oh what God, are those cases wow. going to look like? Transgender ban blocked by the lower courts. The separation of families. It was a lower court judge that said, you guys have to bring them back together, these families back together. So that's lower courts. So now let's switch over to the Supreme Court where people are paying a little bit more attention, even mm. though, to be honest, the Supreme Court only really takes on 70 to 100 cases. Again, thousands and thousands on the lower courts that sometimes never make it up there. Mm. But you have now Trump again getting a second chance in such a short amount of time, a year and a half that he's been in office, to do this again. And we are seeing, and we've had the privilege this time around to see a whole year and a half of what he's capable of, the terrible policies. And we've seen how the courts have protected us. We have seen how they have stopped some of his most terrible things, again, separation of families, Muslim ban. But then we've also seen on the flip side what 5-4 decisions with his first nominee can do, Muslim ban now solidified. All those stopping by the, the lower courts did nothing because now it's solidified. Things like that. And so just imagine adding one more of his nominees. And the most interesting part to me, and I know we alluded to this earlier, is we have, uh, you know, he was given, Trump was given a list of 25 different nominees by the Federalist Society, all of these extreme organizations. And he chooses Kavanaugh. And, and why did he choose him? You know, McConnell said, don't choose Kavanaugh. He has a large record. It's going to take too much time to go through all his paperwork from when he served on the Bush administration, all of this mm-hmm. stuff. We want to ram this through before the election. Don't choose Kavanaugh. Mm-hmm. Trump still chose Kavanaugh. And what was different about Kavanaugh? He is the one guy who said the president could hire or fire a special counsel, you know, whenever he wants. A president should never be criminally indicted. And why, why is that funny? Because we have an investigation on this president right now. And that is terrifying. You know, right now, the administration is saying that they want to take this to court. And currently, we also have this nominee, you know, in place. Like, this right is now, not a coincidence. Is None of this. Let me, okay, Reverend Barber. Let me jump into something that Anisha just said, because I want to defend Trump here for a second. And <laughs> okay, I want to okay. say that, that, that we, remember, we're walking, we're walking to sell the Mount Dumbridge. Yes, that's right. See, I think that, I think that also we got to make, the, we got to be careful not to blame Trump for all of this. See, well, and, well. My, my grandmother used to say, if you know somebody's a thief, and you leave your pocketbook around them and walk out of the room, it's not just their fault that they took your money. Well, you okay. You enabled them. <laughs> okay, right? truth, that's you right. you know somebody's an alcoholic and you serve them alcohol and then they drink it and get drunk, it's not just their fault. That's right. So you just said something. Now, McConnell and them said, don't push Kavanaugh, but then they're still going to confirm it. Right. That's not Trump's fault. Mm-mm. They said, that don't push him, but they're still going to rush it through, even though they know he needs to be vetted. Every one of those federal judges, racist federal judge extreme, they couldn't get confirmation that the Senate confirming. Perhaps judicial panel did not confirm them. Right. Yes, Trump right. can nominate them, but they don't have to come through. Uh-huh. Trump did not refuse to fix the Voting Rights Act preclearance which allowed him to get in the office. What has happened is you have had people who sold their soul for a tax cut. Now, mm-hmm. if you think about it in terms of where we're headed in this country and the changing demographics, if you are afraid of the changing demographics that's coming in the next 10 or 15 years, mm-hmm. no clear majority, and you are rooted in some ideology of white nationalism, you know, the white nationalists said the reason they voted for Trump was because he took on the uh, Mexicans and Latinos, which they believe is the first proxy war to saving America for white people. So if your whole mindset is that we have to create 
a way to survive in a coming demographic where we're not the majority, you know, what do you do? Well, you take all the money, i.e. tax cuts, mm-hmm. you take the power of the court, and you undermine, you know, your voting processes. Yeah. Uh, that way, that what you do is set up a situation where you actually undermine the power of coming uh, majorities, if you will. What we see happening here, as she mentioned, in these federal courts, I believe that a lot of the tweets and all this stuff are distractions. Yes. yes. I'm more upset at the enablers. I'm mm-hmm. more upset at the enablers. Trump is a person, but the enablers, and we can't let them off the hook. That's why 2018 is such an important mm-hmm. election. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have, before Trump ever came to office, let me give you one example, a story. Mm-hmm. In North Carolina, we've had a vacancy in the Eastern District uh, Federal Courts for years. It is the old Jesse Ham's district. It is the eastern part of the state where the predominant black community lives, and they refuse to, to put person on that, on that seat. Mm-hmm. President Obama nominated two African-American women, one Lisa, a former Supreme Court Justice, state Supreme Court Justice, the other a member of the Attorney General's office. Neither one of them was even given a hearing. The two senators from North Carolina, when almost always, if you're from a state, you at least allow somebody from your state to get a hearing. The two senators from North Carolina would not even blue slip these nominees, who are overqualified, if you will, to get a hearing. Now, here, a black woman who's a Supreme Court justice could not get a hearing under a, the McConnell Senate. A hearing and to, to they, fill in a vacant... Just to be heard. Yes. Just to be heard. Yeah. Not, not to be voted on. They would not even hear them. They would wow. not even listen to them. Now, when Trump gets in office, Trump nominates Thomas Farr, who is a known racist, who has fought us on every voter, uh, uh, progressive voter loss for the last 30 years, who was taught by Jesse Ham and who has connections with neo-Nazis. He nominated him, the man we just beat, the man who just defended the voter suppression case that we beat. Wow. And he received a hearing. Wow. And okay. has been voted out of committee. Yep. That tells and you. And is simply now waiting. Do you hear what I'm saying? I do. Okay. So wait, let, me, let me just break it down. Let me break it down. Let me break it down. So what our, okay. let me just like, like, just make sure I'm getting it so that I know my listeners get it too, right? What I'm hearing you say is actually Maya Angelou said it best. She said, when somebody shows you who they are, believe them the first time. (laughs) What you are saying is that our, it's not Trump's fault, our legislature, our Congress, particularly the GOP in the Congress, they are in Senate in particular here, in this case, it is their agenda. They have an extremist agenda, mm-hmm. and they are pushing that agenda through. And they are relentless. The, so, right. The mm-hmm. only thing they differ with Trump on is his mouth and his uh, See, They and have a little more cooth. <laughs> right. But and I ain't putting it through. Careful is we have to can't say, well, you know, we just need to get rid of Trump because Trump is. No, they just disagree with his mouth. And to some degree, they have learned how to use his mouth. 
mm-hmm. and right. to, to continue to do their work underneath the distraction. Right. Wow, that's so true. And that's what's more dangerous, right? They're they're pret- pretending to be professional, like, and, and you know, you're looking at them and saying, at least they're not calling people wacky and crooked and all of mm-hmm. these things, but they're still doing the work. They're doing the dirty work. You know, you mentioned, you know, the North Carolina no- nominations. There mm-hmm. were 10 seats that Barack Obama had had put nominees forth that was going to be the first black this, the first Latino this, right. the first... What are these open- nominations? I didn't catch that. So, so for the Supreme... For, for the circuit court. So lower uh, courts. For lower courts. Yeah, and there were 10 of them that they just wiped that out. They did not confirm any of them. They didn't even give them a hearing, like like was being mentioned, and instead have replaced them with white people. And so it's just, you know, the, the opportunity for diversity on our courts has been taken away. And then the few times that they have taken, you know, I think there was like two Asian Americans that they put forward last year, and they're terrible, right? So it's like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm brown, and there was a South Asian, and he's terrible. Amal Thapar, he is the worst, and and so it's not how, even What helpful. do you mean he's terrible? What does that he mean? He agrees with the entire Trump agenda, the entire, uh, you know, Republican agenda in terms of making he's sure that corporations... He's terrible for civil rights for people right, of color, basically. Corporations over people, you know, mm-hmm. all of like that stuff. Thomas, like Thomas, like Thomas, right, you right. Know, just because he's black, you know, and, and exactly. you, know, you mentioned that earlier, I just want to get into the race piece a little bit because you mentioned, yeah. and I have deep compassion for Anita Hill, don't don't think I don't, but you know, Anita Hill also worked with Thomas when Thomas was gutting the EEO. So what these people mm-hmm. found, you found out in the Anita Hill case, if you ever turn on them, they will turn on you heavily. See, Trump is not the first one to play that game. Anita Hill was in the GOP camp. When she turned, they turned on her. Wow. And so what I want people to understand even now is when we talk about racism today, see, these people are so shrewd and have so much mm-hmm. money or whatever influence, they can make black people support white nationalism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, you think about Tim Scott out of South Carolina. He's yes, black, yes. but he's been opposed to fixing the voting rights. I mean, he's black. He's a senator from a, a state that wouldn't have the representatives it has without the Voting Rights Act, and yet he has been opposed to fixing it. So one of the things we have to be careful of in this moment, particularly around race, and people of faith need that racism is not about whether somebody called you the N-word. It's not even about the folk that marched this, this past. You know, mm-hmm. we get all uptight about everybody's marching and want to have a reaction to what they did. Well, what about the racism that's going on in the courts? What about the racism that's the disparate treatment that's embedded in every decision this Congress has made, from the cutting of the budget to the attempt to take chips to the attempt to gut food stamp programs to the attempt to you know to take health care? We're going to have to look at not the words of racism like Roseanne Barr and. And, and, mm-hmm. and somebody called you the N-word. But what I'm more scared of are the people who will never say the N-word. They're smart enough not to do that. The people who will denounce Charlottesville. But then after they denounce Charlottesville, they will pass deals that line up with a white nationalist agenda. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe, this is the Freedom Road Podcast. Cap 
is a weekly podcast hosted by the Center for American Progress's Michelle Jawando and Igor Volsky. In the current political moment we find ourselves in, full of protests, anger, and activist momentum, Thinking Cap hopes to lay the groundwork for the bold progressive policy ideas we need to continue moving this movement and our country forward. You can find new episodes each Thursday on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and AmericanProgress.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also find them on Twitter at ThinkCapPod. There's one thing we have to talk about, and then there's another thing after that we have to talk about. And we have to do this in the last, this is our last segment before we, we say, all right, guys, go off and now do, do, do good as, you know, as a result of what you've heard. Um, we did not talk about Brown versus Board of Education in particular, and I want to go back to that. I want to ask Dr. Barber, Reverend Dr. Barber, how important in particular in this moment is the is Brown versus the Board of Education to people of color and immigrants in our daily lives? Let me broaden it. Okay. How important is Brown versus Board of Education to America itself? Okay. Because until Brown versus Board of Education, separate but equal was the law of the land. The precedent of Brown versus Board of Education, saying that separate but equal was unconstitutional, set up all the other progress that we have, whether it's the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act. And a lot of times people forget that how white people were uplifted Mm -hmm. by, for instance, the Civil Rights Act of 64. Mm -hmm. You can't discriminate based on sex. You know, and and the other provisions, or how white women could not even sit on juries in many places until after the Voting Rights Act. And so Brown versus Board of Education basically said it was what was on the on the stand was America itself. Right. Now the sadness of Brown versus Board of Education is we should have never had to have have had it passed. Mm-hmm. The 14th Amendment said equal protection under the law. Right. So in essence, what Brown said is for 50-some years, ever, ever since 1896 up until 1954, the Supreme Court had passed a ruling that was in contradiction to the very Constitution that was sworn to uphold. Right. That's the, the ugly irony, the ugly side of American history, is that black people and brown people are the only people that have had to have their freedom and their citizenship voted on. That it was not, you know, just guaranteed as an inalienable right. Mm-hmm. But Brown, in this moment, when you have a person in the Department of Education, DeVos, who's yeah. cutting billions of dollars yeah. from public education, the Brown decision is critical. When you have schools resegregating faster now mm-hmm. than they were in the 1970s. Yes, that's right. And the number one thing that's undermining our public school system is poverty and race. When you have all over the country people trying to create charter schools and private schools that can now get vouchers where you can take public money and fund schools that do not have to accept all children, mm-hmm. uh, regardless of their race, their color, their creed, we have to reach back and hold on to the principles of Brown, but be very careful 
of those who would want to overturn. And, and, and we've had, I'm not a lawyer, I just play one on Friday, but we've had a number of attacks on Brown. We've yes. had attacks on Brown at the university level. And at I come from a city, Lisa, where I stay right now, where the city limits of that city is 100% resegregated. 100% resegregated today wow. because of redistricting and we are having a time getting the Justice Department, even under the former administration, to come in and really fight this and say that this is in fact resegregation not only of bodies, but resegregation of books, budgets, and resegregation of opportunity. I actually was blown away when I did some research on this for, for a previous book that there was in 2007 a Supreme Court ruling that ruled that de facto segregation was fine. It's okay. Not not unconstitutional. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So there's already been an attack on Brown versus Board of Education from conservative justices or justices we would call quote unquote conservative. Anisha also wanted to jump in. Yeah, I mean, think about it. We we are at this place where if Kavanaugh is confirmed, it'll be at least thirty years that he will sit on that court. Think about the number of cases dealing with, you know, voting rights, civil rights, affirmative action, all of these things that will dismantle Brown and all these other cases that we have worked so hard uh, mm-hmm. you know, to bring to the table, they will come forward and we will see them being dismantled piece by piece by piece. What people don't realize, you know, when we talk about overturning, you know, this this nominee will overturn Roe or will overturn this or dismantle this. It's because there are lower court cases that are going through the pipeline. And mm-hmm. given these new uh, judges that we have in place, you know, with this administration on the lower courts, too, it is going to be appealed and appealed mm-hmm. to the point where it reaches a Supreme Court and then it is too late, right? That is the biggest thing. It's too late once it reaches a Supreme Court. Those judges are already in place, those justices, and they will be there for a lifetime. So we need to be fighting this now to protect and preserve whatever is left, you know, of our civil rights, and then right. add on better, better precedents so that we can have a better and just society. Wow. Otherwise, we are at stake there. Their ultimate goal is seven members. Why seven? Because they believe that any president, even if they have a four or two terms, at most will appoint two to three. So they want the kind of majority. That's why these the people they're appointing are young, yes. 30 or 40 years. Yes. Again, so that even if you get another president, and even if that president gets two or three appointments, you still will not be able to overturn the extreme majority. Mm-hmm. And that's why I call it the gangsterization of our politics, the gangsterization right. of our judicial appointments. Mm-hmm. There's something much bigger going on here than just Democrat and Republican. You know, it, and it's happening across the world. Is yes. these, you know, it is these, these strong men and women who root much of their philosophy in white hegemony and nationalism, who are afraid of the growing trends of our of demographics, and they're trying to isolate power. The sad part about it, however, Lisa, is these same persons that do this when they get into office. Take for instance, many of the people who get elected through racist voter suppression. If you check their voting records, they then up in past policies that hurt mostly poor white people. That is for uh, real. And many, you know, in, in terms of raw numbers. Like both, cutting both Medicare, and Medi- like Medicaid. Cutting Medicare or cutting health care mm-hmm. or, or cutting food stamps mm-hmm. or cutting chips. Or in my state, for instance, when they passed, uh, with that, now that they're actually trying to make photo ID constitutional, they're putting it on the ballot to be voted as a, mm-hmm. an article in our constitution, which is a whole other strategy. But 
the people fail to talk about is not just about black and brown people. That's the scheme they use because the suggestion ever since Obama won was something happened. Black people must have cheated. Brown people must have cheated. There's no way this could have happened like this. So that's the underlining, you know, thing. Mm. The reality is 50% of women and many white women don't have a kind of valid ID for various reasons, remarriage, divorce, wow. you know, different things. That's why we have to connect the issue that any law that is racist is not just hurting black people and brown people, it is hurting America itself. So I don't think that we could do justice to this conversation if we didn't also talk about the culture wars, which actually is what brought, what I believe when we look back at the moment that actually congealed enough of a majority of a block of voters to incessantly, over the course of 35 years with single focus, make their single strategy to, to change the, the balance of the court. Like that was, that has been the number one top strategy of the culture wars. And I know this because I'm an evangelical, and I mean, I literally came to the faith. I walked down the aisle, you know, put my brown knees to brown earth and wept tears on a brown altar in the middle of a sea of white people down in South South Jersey, right? And I mean, and it was in a Sunday evening camp church meeting. And not that long after that, I came out of church one day, and my white church, and I was handed a pamphlet that told me that Ronald Reagan was going to save us from the Antichrist, and the Antichrist was Mondale, and so we had to vote for Ma- vote for Reagan because he was going to save us from the Antichrist. And I was told I had to be Republican. And I learned very quickly after that 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 meant overturning Roe v. Wade, right? So that all of that was all. And actually, I found out in my research here that this was all concocted around that time, like sometime between 1978 to 1983. That's when they were putting us all together. And so, but I want to take it back even further to that to to add a little bit of context to this conversation and then we'll begin to wrap up. So Bob Jones University, 1970, the IRS informs Bob Jones University that it was in violation of the new tax policy that demanded that all tax-exempt private schools comply with Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Right, We're going right back to that. And Brown versus the Board of Education, going right back to that, which prohibits segregation and discrimination. The school sues and appeals all the way to where? To the Supreme Court. So these things are completely intertwined, 1970. But they lose. They lose, and they lose when? In 1983, the same year that I I kissed Jesus and said, okay, I'm yours, right? So then, but it's that era that you have the organizers of the religious right um, they who originally came together to rally in support of Bob Jones. They decide that, well, shrewdly, they shift grounds when they realize that Bob Jones, they, that, that case was lost, but they shifted the grounds upon which the university fought its case first from trying to keep segregation alive to now fighting on the, on the basis of religious liberty. Mm-hmm. And then when they lost that, they said, well, what can we still fight that will be able to do what we want to do, which is to shift the court so that we can overturn Brown versus the Board of Education, but we can't do it on the basis of segregation because that's not gauche anymore. And also we do have that pesky Civil Rights Act to deal with. Let's focus on Roe v. Wade because that will shift the court. It'll do the same thing we want to do. It'll have the same end result, um, but, but we'll be able to do it under the cover of the, quote, 
culture war, the conservative agenda, right? So that's what they do. And so the culture war strategy, you know, the newly formed moral majority back then self-proclaims the culture war strategy was to fill the courts with conservative judges and in order to overturn Roe v. Wade. So Dr. Barber, as the most you know, loyal base of the Republican Party, evangelicals, culture wars have largely driven driven the nation to this point, to the point where we have a four four court where one one justice will tip the court. And they put a president into the office who the number one reason people said that they voted for him was because of the courts. Now you call yourself an evangelical. I've already said I'm an evangelical. It's my very first book. I'm, you know, I'm an evangelical. I'm out of the closet there. But what is it about evangelicalism that leads you first to identify with the stream of the faith? And what would you say to evangelicals, like true evangelicals, people who believe the scripture, people who believe in the transformative power of Jesus on the cross, people who believe that our faith has to be active, not just about what we believe, and people who believe in conversion and and moving from darkness into light. What would you say to those people who have been fighting for 35 years to flip the court to overturn Roe v. Wade? Hmm. Well, I would first of all question, you know, I question, I I say I am an evangelical, but I talk about a Jesus evangelical, not a Republican or Trump evangelical or a conservative evangelical. First of all, I, I think you have to start decide whether you're going to be a Jesus evangelical and go to Jesus' first sermon that he gave his political agenda and nothing in there was about you know the things that we call the culture war but but care for the poor is in there and yeah. fighting against those that are sick and welcoming the unaccepted all of those things are in there so mm-hmm. I think what we have to understand is that we have had a and I, I hate to say it but we've had a heresy perpetrating itself as evangelicalism, and it's not a new heresy. As uh, we, I talk about in my book, Third Reconstruction, Jonathan Hargrove talks about in his speech on slaveholder religion. We have a form of slaveholder religion that has continued to have a, a, a re-imagination um, in each age. Mm-hmm. You go back to 1935, we had a form of it called the spiritual mobilization, and business people, business people who hated Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Mm-hmm. and who hated the New Deal, got together and paid billions of dollars to someone to go out and preach a form of quote-unquote evangelicalism that mm-hmm. that basically uh, uh, stood against the New Deal and any kind of help to people from government. So, and, and he, I mean, you just continue to trace it on down to where you said in 1983. I think, Lisa, part of what we have to do Mm-hmm. It's the same thing that Jesus had to do is trace the money. See, a whole lot of things that are being wow. perpetrated as quote-unquote evangelicalism, we need to do a money survey. So Jesus always went to where the money. He said, wherever your money is, that's where your heart is. Wow. And too often, we've not traced the money. So I'm not so sure if there are persons who wanted to make the issue seem like Roe versus Wade. But what they really wanted is to be have control of the courts so they could pass Citizens United, mm-hmm. so that they could undermine voting yes. rights, so that they could hold on to power. That's because right. it's strange, the same people that are so against them, um, Roe versus Wade and, and say they're against abortion, but then they turn around, they're also against health care. That, to me, is just contradictory, or they're against, you know, helping people eat. 
or they say nothing about children being snatched from their fam, their mothers. Right, pro-life and, until and you're born. And our border. That's right. So it's, such mm-hmm. a, it's, it's not a true pro-life uh, theology. It's so questionable. Uh, I could almost handle it if somebody said, you know, I'm against abortion, but I'm also for adopting the child once they get here. I'm also for health care for everybody. I'm also for, you know, uh, food stamps for the poorest among us. I'm also for welcoming immigrants because I believe in pro-life and everything. Mm-hmm, but this mm-hmm. kind of schizophrenic pro-life where you say get the baby here and then let them die. They don't have health care, let them die. Mm-hmm. If they, you know, if they don't have food, let them die. I can't buy that that is in any way a, a form of biblical evangelicalism. Somebody actually yeah. said let them die, if I recall, like maybe about five years ago right. in the legislature. Right. Yeah. 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 So we have to check, you know, there comes a time, we almost need a Jerusalem council in America. You know, you know, people forget in the Bible, if you went off on one, they would call a council and question and say, how does this line up? Mm-hmm. How does this really line up with the one who is the founder, if you will, of, of Christianity, Jesus? How, how does this line up? And in too many instances, we see that people almost use religion uh, like, like Bar Jesus in the book of Acts. He took on the name of Jesus, but everything he stood for politically and socially was contrary to Jesus. And you know what ended up happening to him? They beat him up. It's in the book of Acts. You know, he was perpetrating, you know, Jesus. He was mm-hmm. perpetrating. He wasn't really about Jesus. He had other remote. And Jesus said it. You you say, yeah, yeah, with your, you call my name, but your heart is far from it. What we've seen is a kind of heartless politics come in and hijack religion, hijack Christianity for other means. It hurts me to my heart. You know, Lisa, you were there in Lisburg mm-hmm. when we were served a notice and told that we went on, we went on the campus of Liberty University to just pray. We would be either charged a $2,500 fine or put in jail for one year. And that didn't come from some non That came from a quote, quote unquote, so-called Christian evangelical school. That's for real. That's <laughs> you for were real. there. I was there. And so it's so contrary. So what I say to evangelicals and who called us and who really love Jesus, let's stop being fooled. Jesus' agenda is not the agenda of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. It is the politics of God. And if you really want to know the politics of God, it's very simple. Go to Luke chapter 4, Jesus' first sermon. Go to Matthew 25, Jesus' last sermon. It's right there. That's right. It's, it's right there. It's laid out clear, clear as day. So what can people do? Anisha, Reverend Barber, what can people do, to, especially to protect Brown versus Board of Education and the civil rights and protections of people of color and women in the middle of this particular struggle for the next, whoever will be the next confirmed justice. Right. I mean, there's so many things. I mean, they, you know, Republicans are relentless. Like we said, they have made it so that it's only a 51 vote to confirm a Supreme Court justice. We need to make sure that everyone is calling their senators, especially if you have a senator who is in one of these states that are vulnerable. That means Maine, Alaska, Indiana, West Virginia. These are the states where we are really trying to push the votes to be a no for this nominee. This is a lifetime appointment. Trump's legacy will last a lifetime as opposed 
to the yeah. four to eight years. So this is really important. We talked about Roe. Roe could be overturned. ACA could be dismantled. Guns, voting rights, affirmative action, every single thing we care about. We know what the litmus test was for this. And, and our democracy, right? Again, the investigation that is currently happening that is questioning a lot of what has happened in the in the last election. Mm-hmm. I will end with this, that the Republicans are really good at being a Supreme Court voter, right? When they voted in 2016, a lot of them says, I don't really agree with this thing that Trump is doing or this thing, but I'm going to vote for him because I want to make sure we have conservatives, and again, I'm putting conservatives in quotes, on the court. Mm-hmm. And so that is what they, they wanted and that the, they did. And we have to do the same exact thing, pay attention to the courts. Progressives are not as good at paying attention to the courts, and it is going to harm us in the long run um, you know, for decades to come. So really paying attention, really pushing that. And the biggest thing is pushing the Senate Republicans that we need to see all the records from when Kavanaugh was in the Bush administration, because it is not fair that when Kagan was up, they looked at 99% of her records, and so far we only have 2% of Kavanaugh's, and there are so many millions of documents left to go. We have 2%? Yeah, 2%, and we have millions to go, and yet they want to hold a judiciary hearing September 4th, when Merrick Garland, like we talked about, didn't even get a day from a a judicial hearing, you know, two years ago. So we are at this place right now where we need to push that judiciary hearing back. We cannot have that hearing until we see all the records and we need to make sure Senate Democrats are holding the floor and Senate Republicans who are wavering. We have, uh, you know, Collins and Murkowski, two pro-choice they claim to be uh, Republican senators. They need to be. This is their moment to show that they really are pro-choice. There's a lot at stake here. I mean, look, look, Murkowski and Collins, I mean, honestly, pro-choice, pro-life, I want them to be pro-human being. Right. I mean, I want them to be pro-civil rights as right. well. I mean, for them to for them to nominate him, we've actually just seen very clearly, is going to put the lives of black, brown, Latino, Asian, Native American women, disabled, poor people at risk. So, I mean, yeah, I know they don't want to be the votes to overturn Roe v. Wade, which they will be if they if they nominate um, him. But they also, I don't think they really want to be the ones to overturn Brown versus the Board of Education, which they will be if they nominate him. Right. Their legacy depends on this and, and and their elections. We have elections coming up and everyone is watching and that's important too. You know, do what you can to call your senators now, but then also use your power in November. Those of us who do have the power to do so, again, because of all the, you know, infringement on our voting rights, but those who do have the power to really show up because we have to make sure that we flip the Senate. And Dr. Barber, how it would you right, Lisa, I think mm-hmm. Lisa, I think you're exactly right. We I think Democrats or progressives or whatever they call them themselves make a critical error if we only focus on Roe v. Wade and we don't approach this from a fusion perspective yeah. and show how this is extremism gone amok. And you cannot give Collins or someone a pass just because, you know, on, they say, well, we're pro-life, but then we are also not you know, pushing for, as I said, restoration of the Voting Rights Act. We need to come together because the bottom line, what we found with these extremists who now perpetrate themselves as Republicans is they stick together. They stick together when they want to pass extreme budgets. They stick together when they want to pass extreme tax cuts. Mm -hmm. They stick together so much that you can talk about their mama and then they'll still vote for for a particular issue. That has actually happened. (laughs) You know, because in the black community, we don't play like that. You know, you're not going to talk about my mama (laughs) and then turn around and ask me to vote with you on something. So we're at a whole different level. And I think we have to understand that. I think people need to be packing the offices of of the two senators you mentioned. I think we need to be packing the um, halls of the Senate. 
I think that um, just you notice how the central intelligence agents are standing with Brennan today, and some of them are saying, take mine too, yes. take mine too. Unity in the midst of this Supreme Court. We should have mass movement in the streets because in any other place of democracy, they would be massively in the streets. We're talking again about gangster politics. We're not talking about a normal process. This person Mm -hmm. has come to be nominated in a way that we have not seen in 150 years. Trump and McConnell and, and Brian are pushing the envelope. How how much can we get away with? That's why there has to be a massive vote in, in 2018. Not just a vote, but a massive vote. A massive vote across this country. And we have to stay vigilant all the way to 220. Lawyers should be speaking out in major ways against what's happening. Faith yes. leaders, we have to speak out in major ways uh, against what's happening. There has to be a witness. It's almost like Ezekiel. Even if they do it, there has to be a, such a witness that they cannot say that the prophets were not among them. Now, we've seen this before. Dale Painter, in her, uh, who's a Princeton scholar, says that we have to remember that Trump and all that we see happening is the iconography of a too often repeated reality in the American experience. And that is you have a push toward justice and then you have a vicious backlash. No Obama, no Trump. We have to really understand that. In other words, this was not supposed to happen. Something is wrong. Somebody did something. This is not supposed to be in America. And we're seeing the same kind of backlash here, here similar to what we saw in you know 1872, right on up to the 1896, what we saw right after uh, 1968, this backlash. We've seen it before. But we've also beat it before, right? We've yes, seen that's it right. before, but we've beat it before. But we also know that it takes a great deal of vigilance. And we cannot give up. We cannot just surrender. Even if they do this appointment, then we're going to have to make sure, as I said, that we still fully engage. And that means that if they pull off this appointment, we can't talk about the mobilization of voters who really love this country and love justice just to 220 to get Trump out. We too, like them, have to have a 30 year plan. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness, yes. A 30 year plan. Mm-hmm. You see, That's it for can't real. just yeah, be I a mean... one election cycle plan. It can't just be a one person plan because we're not dealing with people who are just playing. They are playing for keeps. And it is dangerous to the democracy itself. Well, somebody asked me this one time, Lisa. They said, why, Reverend Barbara, are you so supportive of same-sex marriage and, and the LGBT community? It's not a black issue. It's not civil rights. It's not the same. Mm-hmm. And my answer to them was, I know it's not the same. I know that my color identifies me by sight. My sexuality can be identified based on me telling you, but my color is identified by sight. Mm-hmm. So I know it's not the same, and that's why I fight so hard against those who would oppress the LGBT community. Because being black and being Native American, I know what happens whenever you codify discrimination into the law. It took us 250 years of slavery, 100 years of Jim Crow, and we still haven't gotten rid of it. Yes, that's for real. So it's because I know the original sin of the genocide against Native people and the chattel slavery of black people, I have to stand against any informed 
of the codification of discrimination within the laws of our land. We are going to, be, going to be, have to see that, and, if, if, and we're going to have to say, if you're gay, if you're a woman, if you're black, if you're Latino, in this moment, and this is something we're saying in the Poor People's Campaign, in this moment, it is a requirement that we see all of our fights interlocked and intersectional and not in isolation. So I hope that the Democrats do not just try to make the case against Kavanaugh just based on Roe. Yeah. I hope they make the case across the board, Lisa, and they need to hear what you just said. Are you pro-human humanity? Mm-hmm. That's the question. Are you pro-democracy? Mm-hmm. Are you pro-people? And we need to unpack his extremism in every form of it, not just in any one form. Yeah, and you know, I mean, we've actually been, I've been working with evangelical women and men in particular, because again, I it's, it is really the evangelical project, the culture war, that has brought America to this place where we have to make this choice about what kind of nation we're going to be. And so we've been pushing pause. We've been calling on evangelicals across the country to press pause on the culture war. To, because you can't tell people who've been fighting a war, who've been in a wartime mentality for 35 years, you know, okay, just stop it and now vote for the progressives. It's You're never going to get that. And not only that, but it's it's not necessarily the right thing. The right thing is to go to God and to hear from God. What is God calling us to do? And I, so I think we can actually get people. Folks can actually stop fast, listen to the stories of people of color asking the question, why, why does it matter to you what the Supreme Court, how they vote on things like voting rights? How, why does it matter to you um, how the Supreme Court votes on things like disability rights? Why does it matter to you what the Supreme Court votes on? Who can bake your cake for your marriage, you know, for, for your wedding? Why does this matter to you? And, and listening, listening hard, because when you're in the middle of a war, there's only there's only friends and enemies. There's no human beings. And you are always right. And the other person is always wrong. But what if this is not a war? What if we're not in war? What if we are simply human beings trying to figure out how to live together? If we are just human beings trying to figure out how to live together, then we can pause. We can listen to God. We can listen to each other. And we can call our senators. Mm-hmm. We can call the senators and tell our senator that we will accept nothing less than an independent, truly independent, moderate justice to replace Justice Anthony Kennedy. Nothing less will do. The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road podcast is recorded at the studios of the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C. This episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road podcast is produced by Freedom Road, LLC, and we consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.com. Us. Stay in the know by signing up for our updates. We promise we will not flood your inbox. 
We invite you to listen again next month. New episodes drop around the first day of each month. Join the conversation on Freedom Road.